Our scripture today is from Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 47. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word as we try to know you better. Please open our ears, our minds, and our hearts as we hear the message that Pastor Rick brings us today. Speak to each of us where we are and pull us to where you want us to be. In Jesus' precious name, amen. All right, so it's good to see everyone here this morning. If uh, you don't mind, let's go ahead and open up to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2. And we're going to continue in a series. We started several weeks ago working our way through the book of Acts. And we're working our way through the first few chapters here. And we're going to be specifically in verses 1 through uh, 47. But one thing that I love about the book of Acts and that I hope that if you are a follower of Jesus and if you've ever studied or read the book of Acts that you love about it is that this book shows what Christianity looks like in real life. Like this is not theory this isn't just theological construct. Like this is real life Christianity, real people living it out. And what I love about the book of uh, Acts is that it chronicles what is this very small group of very common, ordinary, everyday Christians, this small group that changed the world. They launched a movement that to this day is changing the world. How? How could a group, a little tiny group of individuals change the world? And it's really simple. They were devoted to their convictions. They were devoted to their conviction. Conviction is being so persuaded, so persuaded that something is true that you give your life over to it. It's being so convinced that something is right and it's true that you give yourself over to it and you're willing to do whatever it takes to see it lived out and to see it carried out. You know, athletes talk about conviction all the time. They don't necessarily use the word conviction, but they express the sentiment. I believe in myself, right? Haven't you ever heard an interview and the athletes refer like, I have to believe in myself. I have to believe in my teammates. I have to believe and I have to trust in the coaching or in the system or, or whatever, the training. I have to believe in it. Folks, those are words of conviction. Like a real champion doesn't become a champion if not for the fact that they really believe that they can do what it is that they think they can do. So on, on the PGA Tour, the guy is not going to make that eight-foot putt on the 18th green of the Masters. He's not going to make it if he doesn't really believe he can sink the putt. The same thing in basketball. You can't make the free throw if you think you're not going to make it. You get the, the yips. 
right? LeBron James has a bad case of the free throw yips, right? It's in his head now. Like, he's like, I can't make free throws. He doesn't want to go to the foul line at the end of the game because he can't make it. So he knows that. The best player in the world knows he can't make the free throws. He lacks a conviction in that moment to do what it is that his team needs him to do. Uh, here's a really interesting quote from an athlete, the greatest, Muhammad Ali. And I, I, this is just a remarkable quote. He says, it is the repetition of affirmations that leads to belief. And once that belief becomes a deep conviction, things begin to happen. Like once conviction becomes real in our heart, things begin to happen. So if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, folks, we need to be people of deep conviction. And of, what, and of what conviction in particular? God loves us. I mean, are you convicted by that? Are you persuaded by the fact that there is this benevolent, wonderful, infinite God who is Lord over everything and that he loves you and everything about you and everything about your life, like your heart, like he desires what's good for you? Like, are you convinced that that, that is true? And, and you have to buffet that with the reality that we are actually all sinners, are we not? We're rebels against God. So here's a, the Lord of creation, and we're constantly mocking God, and we're constantly rebelling against him, and we're constantly, like, shunning him from our life. We're rejecting his word, and we're rejecting his commandments. We're turning away from him constantly, like, every day, all day long. Like, God, I have my agenda. I know you want me to do such and such, but I got my thing to do. We do that all the time. And despite that, God still loves us. Isn't that profound? So not profound. No, a, a great truth that, that I, sh I hope would embrace all of us is that you are more sinful than you ever dared imagine. You're more sinful than you ever dared imagine, but you are more loved than you can ever possibly imagine. God has grace for you. He offers forgiveness for all of those wrongdoings and all those failures and, and all that sin and that rebellion. God offers straight up forgiveness, straight up forgiveness. And the cross proves that. Like God sent his son. Jesus comes to the earth specifically to go to a cross where there he's nailed to that wood to take upon himself the burden of our sin, our guilt, our shame, our failures, our fear, our worry, all that. To take it upon himself. He paid the price of our sin, died, was raised again. Having proven that he paid the price of our sin. He proves the love of God. Jesus proves that God is gracious and good and merciful and benevolent and slow to anger and patient with us. So are you persuaded of that? Are you convicted of that truth? Because as if we are, if we are persuaded, then as Muhammad Ali would say, things need to begin to happen. If once conviction takes hold, can, things need to happen in our life. We need to maybe float like a butterfly and sting like a bee, spiritually speaking. Our life needs to change. Like, this is what happens when we actually believe in, in the grace of God. Like, there's something fundamentally that then gets altered. Like, we get pointed in a new direction, and as a result of that new direction, we start doing new stuff. New things begin to happen. In other words... 
There is a brand new devotion to our life. There are new devotions. There are other things we were devoted to before Jesus. Now after Jesus, brand new devotions, new things that are to characterize our life. And so I wanted to ask this question. How many of you have ever used Craggle? Okay, one person understands it, right? Crazy glue. Come on, folks. The Craggle. Crazy glue. The Lego movie. The craggle, it's like caulk and duct tape. You can't live without it. You got to have crazy glue in your house. Isn't that true? Like you need it all the time for all kinds of stuff. Several years ago, true story, I accidentally stabbed myself with what is a six-inch knife, and it was a pretty bad injury. I was at home by myself. I was in my backyard, and right there, inside the hip, right there. Now, so after I pulled the knife out, that's not a pleasant experience, but I'll tell you the details of that story some other day. And once I kind of made sure I wasn't going to bleed out completely in the moment, and I kind of reduced the pain and held it, what did I do? I actually went looking for crazy glue in the house. That's actually one of the purposes for crazy glue. You can use it to adhere skin together. Unfortunately, we didn't have any, and so I used duct tape. <laughs> I used gauze and duct tape, and I went back outside and did some yard work, and it was, anyway, Jamie was mad at me for not going to the ER in that moment. But I, I digress back to, to the story here. We use crazy glue not only to uh, adhere puncture wounds, but for all kinds of stuff. We break a lamp. We glue it back together. All kinds of stuff, right? You know that this is what devotion does in our life? Devotion is the glue between our, our behavior and our belief. It's what glues our behavior to our belief. Devotion is what adheres our conviction to real life. We don't want our conviction to be out here somewhere just in our mind and in our wishful thinking and intentions. No, I want my convictions to be in real life. So I need something to draw that together. And that's where devotion comes into play. That's what devotion does. It adheres the two. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 47. It is all about devotion. Devotion to convictions. That is how this small group of normal Typical, everyday Christians started a movement that not only changed the world, but to this day changes the world. And here's something that I would hope it would excite all of us. If we would do the same thing, if we would devote ourselves to the same things that early church would devote to, guess what? We'll change the world too. And we'll change the world one person at a time, one conversation at a time, one relationship at a time if we are but simply devoted to the right things. So the big question we all have to ask and answer, wrestle with this morning is, what is it that you're devoted to? When you look at the landscape of your life, what are the things that you are truly devoted to? Not just like in wishful thinking, but in actuality. What is it that you're devoted to? So We'll get here into our text. We left off, it, left off in verse 41 last week, which tells us something just crazy. 3,000 people are converted in one day. 3,000 people hear the Apostle Peter preach a sermon. They receive his words. They repent of our sins. They put their trust in Jesus Christ, and they're saved. They're converted to the faith, and they're added to the church. I would say that that is a good church day. 
right there. 3,000 people in one day. That is a successful worship service, I would say. So maybe we don't have 3,000 in here today, but we'll see what happens at the end of this sucker this morning. It, I believe that it is fitting. It is so fitting that they had 3,000 people give their lives to Jesus on this one day. Because in Acts 2, it actually is the day of Pentecost, which is also known, it's a major Jewish holiday, also known as the Feast of Harvest. So isn't it cool that on the Feast of Harvest, there was this incredible spiritual harvest that took place on the day of Pentecost. Uh, by the way, Today, June 4th, is actually Pentecost. I don't know if you know this. Today is actually Pentecost on the calendar. So we are going to celebrate Pentecost today. Uh, the way we're going to do so after service, we're going to have church lunch. So I think that, you know, harvest food, that makes sense. We're going to have lunch. And then after the lunch, we're going to have uh, the Feast of Strength and then also the airing of grievances. I think that's part of the holiday. I'm not sure. I might have some of my holidays confused, but that, that last part, the airing of grievances, that's my favorite part. So be sure to stay for that. So on this one day, yeah, half of you, did anyone catch that joke? All right, like two people maybe? Uh, yeah, all right, over here. Thank you. All right, anyway, 3,000 people one day give their lives to Jesus. One day, 3,000 people are convicted, they're persuaded, they're convinced of what? That Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is the long-awaited, long-anticipated Messiah. That Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture and prophecy and promises. That Jesus is, in fact, the Lamb of God who came into this world to go to a cross to pay for our sin. That Jesus is not only the slain Lamb of God, but that Jesus died and was resurrected out of the grave. That he physically died and was physically resurrected. That he's the risen Savior. He's conqueror over sin, over death, over darkness, over the devil. That he was raised from the dead proves that fact. And that now, uh, as the resurrected Savior, he is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, presiding over all of the affairs of the cosmos. That is who Jesus is. And these people heard that message from Peter, and they were convinced. They were convicted. They were persuaded of the reality of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus has promised and secured for the future. They're convicted. End of story, right? Is that where it ends? No. Now what? What do you do? What do, what do people do when they come to such life-altering, jaw-dropping, mind-blowing conviction. What do you do? And that's what we get into in verse 42. It says there that they devoted themselves, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. The early Christians displayed the sincerity of their faith through their devotion. They displayed the reality of their conviction through their devotion. They lived it out. So they didn't, you know, it says they got, they got added to the church. It wasn't that their names got added to the church roster, which is what happens in so many churches, right? I'm a member, right? And your name goes through. Well, it doesn't really mean anything. It wasn't that. It wasn't that they simply got their get out of jail free card. It wasn't just like eternal fire insurance that they received. No, like this fundamentally altered who they were and how they lived. There was a brand new life now to be lived. So they became people of integrity, people who live out their conviction. So it says there in verse 42, it says, be devoted, like that they were devoted. What does that word mean? 
It means to be zealous, to be ardent in your commitment, in your steadfast loyalty, in your, your, your being resolute towards something. It really means obsession, if you think about it. To be devoted to something or someone, to a pursuit, is to be a bit obsessed over what it is that is you're devoted to, that person, that thing, that, that pursuit. And in verse 42, the verb that they were devoted is different. It means that they were always being devoted. Like every day they were redevoting themselves. Like the initial decision to devote themselves, to, to be a Christ follower, wasn't like a one-time thing. It was something that they gave themselves to over and over and over again. It was an ongoing, persistent decision. Not one time, every day, all day, follow. The truth is that the Christian life requires devotion, ongoing, repetitive, ongoing, persistent, rededication and rededication and rededication every day. The Christian life requires ongoing devotion. Think of a diet. The worst. Dieting's awfulness. I, I can't stand it. I, I really detest it. I try to do it and then it doesn't, it doesn't work. But just imagine, you go to the doctor, and the doctor, you know, they take your blood panel, and it's like, well, guess what? Your blood sugar's high, and your blood pressure's high, and your cholesterol's high, and if you don't get these numbers down, this is going to happen, and you, you're, you're at risk for a stroke or a heart attack. You're at risk for this and this and that and the other. You're, you're at risk for like quadruple bypass, etc. So they'll scare the mess out of you, right? You get convicted in that moment that you better make a lifestyle change. You get very convinced in that moment that you better make some changes to your diet. So you own it. You say, all right, I'm in. I got it. I'm going to do this because it's right and it's good. It's good for me. It's good for my family. I'm going to diet. Folks, five minutes later, within five minutes, you're going to be tempted to already betray that decision. You get the call from the doctor. You get the call from the Hey, start the diet right now to lower your cholesterol. Yes, sir, I'm in. I'm all about it. Five minutes later, that jack wagon at your office is reminding everybody, it's National Donut Day. We're making a trip to Krispy Kreme. There's always that person. There's always that thing. The world is constantly trying to get us to betray our convictions all of the time. And it's the same, it's the same spiritually, not just physically. You know, one of my, my favorite hymns is Come Thou Fount. And in the third verse, it says, let that grace, so let the grace of God, let that grace now like a fetter, like a chain, let that grace like a chain bind my wandering heart to thee. And check out this next line. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. The very instant that you come under the conviction of God and who he is and of something that God wants you to do or something that God wants you to change, in that moment, it is not long before you're going to be tempted by something or someone to betray that very conviction. It is part of our flawed human nature. This is where we are quick to get out of sync with our devotion to God and the things of God. That is why we always have to be Consistently, persistently, every day, all day, devoting ourselves and redevoting ourselves to the Lord. If not, we will wander. And so, folks, it is not in our best interest to wander from, from God. It, it says in Psalm 23, verse 2, 
says, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. And I just love the imagery that the Bible paints for us. Like, it's not just that I'm in a green pasture, but that Jesus himself is my good shepherd. And he's loving and he's wise and he knows what's right for me. And so that's where I need to be, like close to God, close to my shepherd in these green pastures that he provides where there's provision and protection and guidance and counsel and encouragement, all of that. That's where it's right. But everything in the world, everything in the world is bent on drawing you out of God's green pastures. Everything, every TV commercial. What do you think the advertising industry is built upon? Trying to get you away from the things of God toward the things of the world. Your Facebook feed, the right-hand side of your feed, what's all that? Distractions, everything trying to kill you from your devotion to God and the things of God. Oh, let me click on that. Everything in the world is wired that way, and it's It doesn't go well for us when we stray from God. It doesn't go well when we trade our devotion to God for the things of the world. That's where we really make the bad decisions. That's where we really get in trouble. So it is in our best interest, best interest to stay devoted, to be devoted, to being devoted to God. And it's not just in our best interest. Guess what? It's in the best interest of those around us. It's in your wife's best interest. It's in your husband's best interest. It's in your children's best interest. It's in your neighbor's best interest for you to stay committed to Jesus. God uses our devotion to him to draw other people to himself. God uses our devotion to him to draw other people to himself so for the sake of the glory of God and for our own good and for the good of our loved ones and our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers and whomever that we may come into contact for their sake be devoted to the Lord be devoted to the things of Jesus and of Christ set your mind on things above and specifically what are the things that we're to be devoted to the first thing it tells us in verse 42 is that we need to be devoted to being learners of God's word it says right there that they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching we don't need apostles today we don't have apostles today And part of the reason for that is that we have all of the teachings of the apostles and everything that God wants us to know, everything that we need to know for spiritual health and for spiritual growth, everything is provided in the fullness of the scriptures, of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we don't need apostles around anymore. We've got the very word of God. But why should we devote ourselves over to it? Like, why should I obsess even about the Bible? You know, Jeremiah 17, 9, and he tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things. The heart, your heart lies to you. You can't trust your emotions. You can't trust your feelings. And then to pile on that, Genesis 6, 5 tells us that pretty much all of our thoughts are only awfulness all of the time. So, Okay, so I can't trust my thinking, I can't trust my emotions, I can't trust my mind, I can't trust my heart. Well, what that tells us is that we are, in fact, our very own worst enemy. You know, some people may have an unloving spouse. Guess what? They're not your enemy. And yeah, some people have children that will absolutely fray every last one of your nerves. They're not your enemy. And some of you have a boss who's an utter moron. Not your, not your enemy. 
It's your sinful thoughts. It's your sinful emotions. It's your sinful reactions. That's the problem. And the only remedy to that heart condition, that mind condition, is Scripture. Jesus tells us in John 17, he's praying to the Father on our behalf. And in verse 17 of John 17, he says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. To be sanctified means to become less sinful and more like Jesus. Become holier. That the way that we grow in our Christ-likeness, the way that we mature in our faith, is by spending time in God's word and let it, let it wash us, let it renew us, let it scrub us to remove the impurities and remove that sinful attitude and disposition and then replace it with something significantly better. It's through Scripture that God speaks to your heart, that illumines your mind, that encourages your soul. That all takes place through the Bible. And I wish I could tell you, it's just read this one verse and, and voila, that, that did it. Like that would be nice. But scripture, at the end of the day, is not like a magical incantation. I read John 3.16, and then all is well. Like, it doesn't work that way. God's word is more like an ocean tide. Over time on the ocean, eroding, you know how the ocean over time erodes the beach? That's what God's word does. Over time, it erodes away our sin. Over time, and that, that discipline of re- rinsing and repeating over And over and over, time after time, day after day, week after week, year after year, and you look back on your life and like, wow, God's word actually had this change in my heart, and I am a different person than I was a year ago, 10 years ago, 50 years ago. In his book, Radical, David Platt uh, he wrote, he tells this incredible story. He travels to this country in Asia. It's a country that it is illegal for Christians to gather for any reason. And if you're caught in this country worshiping or gathering as a Christian, you're going to lose your family, you're going to lose your house, you're going to lose your job, you're going to lose your life. It's that severe. And so he happens to be in this village, and this small group of villagers they ask him a question. They, they ask him to lead a Bible study. And so I'm just going to read an excerpt from, from this story here. So they ask him to lead the Bible study, study. They say to him, please meet us tomorrow at 2 in the afternoon. So I put some thoughts together for a short Bible study and went to the designated location. I don't remember when we started, but I do remember that eight hours later, we, will still, we were still going strong. Eight hours later, it was late in the evening, and they wanted to continue studying, but they said, but they, they wanted to continue studying, but they needed to get back to their home. So they asked the two main church leaders and me, can we meet again tomorrow? So eight hours on this one day wasn't enough. They wanted to meet again the next day. So I said, I would be glad to. Shall we meet at the same time? They responded, no. We want to start early in the morning. I said, okay, how long would you like to study? They replied, all day. Eight hours wasn't enough. So the next day, they wanted to go all day studying God's word. Thus began a process in which over the next 10 days, 
over the next 10 days, for 8 to 12 hours a day, we would gather to study God's word. And then he writes, they were hungry. They were hungry. And in the story, it continues, the Christians didn't say, we will do whatever it takes. Most of us are farmers and we work all day, but we will leave our fields unattended for the next couple of weeks if we can learn the Bible. They were willing to forego their crops to learn the Bible. They were willing to go hungry to eat. They were hungry for the right thing. They were devoted to the right thing. I think that they lived out what Jesus said in Matthew 4.4 when he said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Are you hungry? Are you hungry for the word of God? Are you reading it? Are you studying it? Are you meditating on it? Are you memorizing it? Are you hiding it in your heart? Are you carving out time in your precious schedule to carve something good out of the Word of God? Are you hungry? You know, and a lot of times people just don't know. Like, I don't, I've never done this Bible reading stuff. I've never studied the Bible. So where do I begin? Go to youversion.com. Folks, it's that simple. They've got different reading plans on there. Just be hungry and go where you can be fed. So go to YouVersion and they'll break it down. Read this today and this tomorrow and this next week and et cetera. They'll break it down for you. Go, go there. Uh, if, if that's not what you're into, you know what? If you've never read the Bible, do this. This is usually how I recommend people start. Take the book of James, which is only five chapters. You read a chapter per day till Monday through Friday, and on Monday, start again and do that for four weeks. And in four weeks, you read the entire book of James four times. You'll know it pretty well by the end of four weeks. Here's another easy one. The book of Proverbs has 31 chapters. One chapter a day. Most months, or half months at least, have, what, 30, 31 days? So you double up on a couple of months. That's okay. You'll be all right. But just read, read, be a consumer, be hungry for the very things of God. And I understand that not everyone's a reader. Not everyone likes reading. People are like, some people read one sentence and they fall asleep instantly. I, like, I get that, all right? You know what, that in a lot of these apps these days, you can actually listen to it. It's not just that you get to read it, they'll actually read it for you. Now, you can even get, like, James Earl Jones on some, some places to, like, read it for you. That's cool, Darth Vader reading you scripture. Or how many good Christian podcasts are there today? So you're driving to work, and instead of like just wasting your time, and not, not like, like you can redeem the time, and there's a lot of good people, and I'll never get up here and say, you know, don't listen to so-and-so. I'm not going to say that from up here on a Sunday morning, but if you have questions, should I listen to so-and-so? What about them? I can recommend some people to listen to, to redeem this time, this, this time in the car, or, or during your lunch, or before you leave, to listen to the right things and like immerse yourself in the things of God. And then we have Wednesday nights. And this is a great week. Wednesday night, we start a brand new study. And all of the, the month of June, each Wednesday, we're going to look at a, spe a specific psalm. And this week is Psalm 27, my personal favorite. So it's not accidental that that's what we're covering the first week. 
But man, that for us to gather together, and I, I will say this, that, that I learn as I read the Bible on my own, but I never learn as much as I do when I'm actually in God, with God's people. There's something supernatural that takes place when God's people are together with God's word. Like there, there are questions and insight and answers and perspective that come and work out in that, in that environment that don't happen anywhere else. So come on Wednesday night, 7 o'clock. We'll split up into small groups and we'll just discuss and we'll devour God's word together. Now, A.W. Tozer, he wrote, The man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems. The person who comes to a right knowledge and understanding of God is relieved of a lot of stress and anxiety and worry. That much of the joy and much of the peace that we're so wanting but is so lacking is due to the fact that we don't know God as we should. And the reason we don't know God as we should is that we're not devouring God's word. People mistakenly think of the Bible as this to-do list or this to-don't list. And it's really not either. It is the revelation of God. It is through the, the, the pages of the Bible that we then come into a knowledge of how good God is, of how merciful he is, of how wonderfully matchless in love he is. We learn about Jesus and just how beautiful Jesus is. Like the Bible is the instrument, it's God's love letter to us by which we fall in love with him. Oh, we are relieved of 10,000 problems. If we just read the Bible, devote ourselves to it, give our hearts and our minds to pursuing God, not work, not ministry, which we're so prone to do, but actually Flexing our conviction and our devotion in such a way that we wrap our arms around the God who loves us. That's scripture. And we live in such a dangerous world. How in the world are we going to survive without a knowledge of God? How do people do that? Man, I struggle enough with my, my knowledge. Like, what about people that don't know Jesus at all? Or if my knowledge were less, how much better would my life be if I trusted God more and I knew his promises even better and I hid his, heart, his uh, word in my heart even to a greater degree than I have? How do you survive without it? And it's bad enough that my own heart lies to me. And on top of that, you got the world just piling on lie after lie. How am I going to know the difference between right and wrong? How am I going to know the difference between truth and falsehood if I'm not in the very truth of God in his word and scripture? How am I going to know the difference? And in Colossians, it tells us, don't be tossed to and fro. How? Read the Bible, study it, meditate on it, reflect on it, consume his truth, devour it. Parents, for the sake of your children, hide God's word in your heart. Our kids that are growing up today, they are exposed to an emotional and a spiritual violence unlike any generation in, in my estimation. They are exposed to a wickedness, not only the amount, but at earlier and earlier ages now that this scares me. How are they going to survive if we as parents are not implanting God's word in their hearts? And if I may be so bold, the most unloving thing a parent can do is not teach their children what God says. 
We can take them to Disney all we want. We can buy them ice cream every day. We can tuck them in nice and tight every night. But if we're not studying God's word in order at least to teach our children, we don't love them. Because there is a devil in a darkness in a world that wants to eat our children and spit them out and destroy their hearts and their minds. And as much as it depends on us as their parents, mothers and fathers, pour yourself into Scripture. Let God pour his truth into you that you could pour it into them and give them a fighting chance. So are you hungry? I would say binge at least for the sake of your children. But are you personally hungry for the word of God? And I wonder how many of us would, if we were honest, say, no, I'm really not. If we're just honest, like, I, I know I should be, I want to be, but I'm really, I'm really not passionate or obsessed with or devoted to God's word. I'm, I really I almost don't feel like I have a need for it. I know I should, but I don't. And you know why that's the case? It's because we're too busy devouring other stuff. We filled ourselves with other things that actually removed the appetite that we should have for only the things of God. Ah, let me binge on Netflix for a while. Let me spend an extra hour on Facebook. An extra hour of gaming, what's it going to hurt? See, I need some mental downtime. I just need a a distraction. I need something casual to just kind of relieve the pressure. And so we start like just eating this stuff and it's filling our hearts and our minds. Well, next thing we know, we don't need anything else because we're, we're medicating with this other stuff. It's masking our appetite. So to be devoted, guess what we got to do? We got to actually exercise what is, in American culture, a four-letter word, discipline. We actually have to say, if I really truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he loves me and died for me, he rose from the dead and he secured my future, if I really, really believe that, I'm going to step forward in devotion and discipline, and I'm going to say, this time every day, I'm going to devote to God and not Netflix, not Facebook, not the game, nothing else is going to prevent me from my time with the Lord. Period. We flex our devotion in that moment. Folks, we got to be glued to our convictions. We got to be devoted learners of God's word. And it's for our good and it's for the good of those around us. Because God uses our devotion to draw other people to himself. And the second thing we need to be devoted to here is community. In verse 42, it says that they were devoted to fellowship. What does that word mean? Here the Greek word, some of you know it, is koinonia. It's probably like the one main Greek word pretty much most Christians know is we've been in church more than two days. Koinonia. Quote it as if that makes us extra spiritual. Koinonia, what does that mean? Folks, this fellowship, what this word means, it's way more than just hanging out. That's involved, but it's way more than that. What it, what it means is that we enjoy such a deep relationship that we actually take responsibility for one another. That there is this communion of heart and mind and accord where we invite each other into each other's lives and we then take a share in each other's lives. We give ourselves over to one another. That's the word. Not just hanging out. We give, like I give myself to you, you give yourself to me. 
We give ourselves to this relationship in Christ. It's amazing how many times the word together shows up in just the first two chapters of the book of Acts. So in verse 6, it tells us that God's people, they were together. And in chapter 1, verse 14, they prayed together. And in chapter 2, verses 5 through 14, they go out witnessing together. Here, clearly, they're devoted to fellowship, to being together. In verses 44 through 45, it actually says, all who believe were what? Together. They were together. Doing what? They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds of all as any had need. That's fellowship. I have a brother or sister in Christ in need, and I'm willing to sell a possession to help them. See, that's generosity. That's real generosity. Real generosity, Christian biblical generosity, actually comes with sacrifice. So if I pay all my bills, and me and my wife go to eat out every night, and we put enough aside in the 401k and the Roth, and, and we set aside for Christmas and for the vacation, and I'm setting aside to buy the brand new toy and all that, and I happen to have five extra dollars at the, at the end of the month, and then someone has a need and I give them the five dollars, praise God, but that's not Christian generosity. See, Christian generosity isn't giving out of our excess, it's giving out of the lesser of that. It's giving out of what we have secure for ourselves and our pleasures. See, these people understood what, it, what real fellowship meant. I'm willing to sell. I'm willing to go without. I'm willing to not have as comfortable a life. I'm willing to not have the toys that I want if it means helping out a fellow brother and sister in Christ. That's love. So the call here in fellowship is actually to selflessness, is it not? Be selfless. See a need? Address it. See a need, like speak into it. See a need, help out. Financial, and it's not just financial, it's time as well. So they loved each other. It's a, it's a complete opposite mentality of our U.S. culture, which says, just look out for number one. Now, that's what the world teaches. Just look out for yourself. Look out for number one. Then, if you have time later, then you can take out of another person. But no, the scriptures flip it around. No, look out for others first. Put others ahead of yourself. And then in there in Acts 2, verse 46, it actually tells us that they worshiped together. They worshiped together. And they ate meals together. They ate food together. Folks, that, that's what fellowship looks like. Like, I know that right now this doesn't feel like fellowship, but it's worship. And where we're singing, folks, let me tell you, there is no greater no greater display of fellowship than when we are singing. There's a reason why we're called Anthem Church. I believe that music offers us an incredible illustration of what it means to be the body of Christ, the church. I mean, here's how this works. Like, imagine God is this great composer. And what do composers do? They, they grab notes. They grab the right notes and they, they put them together. They arrange the notes together and they're in the, the right pitch and the right rhythm and all this stuff. It's really cool. And they design and they create the song, this anthem. Well, see, that's what God does with us. We are all individually different notes. But by grace through faith in Jesus, then God takes us out of just this lone tone existence out there somewhere, and then he scores us into his anthem. And then we become together these notes that create this song that is God. We're, our lives are to be a worshipful life, not just individually, but together, where we together sing the praises of God. That's fellowship. 
We are never more united than we, we are singing to the Lord Sunday mornings or wherever we're together singing to the Lord. We're saying the same things about God at the same time in right rhythm, in right pitch, some of us. But that's okay. God loves the joyful noise. But we're never more united than when we are singing together. For that's fellowship. That's real koinonia, us giving ourselves to each other. And Scripture tells us that it's when we are singing, in Ephesians chapter 5, in our singing, we are building each other up. Like the one time in the New Testament it talks about singing, it's actually not so much in reference to what it does for God, that it blesses him, but what it does for us. It edifies us. It builds us up as we sing together, folks. That, that's what worship looks like, and that's what fellowship looks like. And you take all of these verses together, and it paints a picture of what real church should look like. It is believers giving themselves over to one another to help one another, to love one another, to exercise and practice their faith together, and to worship and eat and just do life with one another. And do you realize how much we need this? Do you recognize how much you need this in your life? It is so right. It is so good to know that there's a group of brothers and sisters in Christ who have your back, who are there for you whenever you need the help, who are walking alongside of you, not just through the hard times, but through the good times, so that we don't just re we grieve when we grieve, but we rejoice when the other rejoices as well. We need this so much. Hebrews chapter 10 and it tells us, don't neglect gathering together. So basically, be together all of the time. Like, be together. Don't neglect gathering with one another. Why? To stir up one another for love and good deeds. It's an illustration I've used a lot. If you've heard me say it, I apologize. In the South, we know how to make sweet tea. If it's not sweet tea, it's just dirty water. And good for nothing. We in the South, we know how to make sweet tea. You boil the water, you put the tea bags in, you mix the sugar in, right? While it's still hot. Do you wait until it's cold to mix the sugar? No, you don't. Why? Because it, it won't, it won't um, dissolve. And so it'll just solidify and settle to the bottom, right? It'll settle to the bottom. And so the only way then to partake of sweet tea is that you have to stir it and drink. Stir it and drink. Stir it and drink. Well, it's the same thing with us as followers of Christ. We're like sweet tea in which the sugar has been added after the fact. And so the, the goodness, right, the love, the good deeds, the grace, the, the, the life we're supposed to live has this tendency of solidifying and then settling to the bottom. And so what do we need? We need Christians in our life to stir us up, to bring that back up. So we need each other for accountability. We need each other for guidance. We need each other to, to teach us. And it's not just that you need me. It's the fact that I need you to do that for me, for you to provide joy and edification and counseling and, and all of that good stuff in my life. Like, we don't need yes men. This is what the world offers. The world offers us just yes men after yes men. You know why? Because yes men don't care. Yeah, 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 do, do what you want. Feels good, do it. I don't care. Do whatever you want. Yes men don't help us. What we need in our life, people that are willing to be no men or no woman. We need people that are willing and able to say a no to our life. To speak no, like, stop doing that. Don't do that. You're going in the wrong direction. 
not out of a sense of legalism, but out of a desire for love, for our own good and our own, and our own help. I mean, folks, we need this in our lives. I don't know how people make it without Christian community. I really don't. And especially once you've experienced what true, authentic Christian community feels like, like it's like, I, there's no, I can't step out of that. Like, I've experienced too much goodness as a result. You know, like, my, my wife, Jamie. So I would say that in church life, and it's not an official title or anything like that, but the hardest job in the church is pastor's wife. I'm absolutely convinced of that. No one sacrifices more in the life of a church than a pastor's wife. And it's been like that since we've been married, and especially as a church plant. And so here recently, someone in a church that lives in our neighborhood, Kristen Stiltner, I, God just put her in her heart, I guess, and said, and she took Jamie out for a pedicure and out to dinner. I can't tell you how much that blessed her. To know that there's this friend that's loving on her. And then last week, Jamie was sick. It was the sickest I've ever seen her in 10 years. And so uh, here comes Nicole, and she brings dinner over to the family. Without asking or anything, she just knew we were sick, and so she brought dinner over. Back in January, I had to go to the emergency room. I, I genuinely, literally thought I was having a stroke. And it was late one evening. And uh, Jamie's driving, and I thought I was dying. And she called Brent just to tell someone, pray for us. And next thing I know, Brent's at the hospital. Do you know what that means? To know that someone, I know I can call Justin at any time and ask anything. I know that. You know what that means? Like, that makes life a lot easier to handle. A lot easier to handle. Now, one of, the, one of the ways that God provides spiritual strength into our life is through the church. It's through his people. You know, like so many people are walking around just empty, Empty, like not right, out of sorts, emotionally and everywhere. Why? Because you haven't devoted yourself to God's people. Like there's no allowance in Scripture for lone wolf Christianity. It's actually incompatible. Like there's no such thing. Read somewhere in the Bible where someone's just kind of doing Christianity out by themselves. There's no such thing. They're always, always in community. Always with God's people. And to say, I want to live in the power of the Holy Spirit while living in complete contradiction to the Word of God. Guess what's going to happen? Ain't going to be no power. There's going to be no strength, no joy, no peace. Like so many of us are just living, quite frankly, impotent, spiritually impotent. Why? Because we haven't devoted ourselves to Christian community, to our brothers and sisters in Christ. The word koinonia, this is really interesting. The word koinonia is technically covenant language. Covenant language. I found this this week. It says that in the first century, it was often a term used of the type of mutuality that takes place in marriage. A lot of times in the first century, when they used the word koinonia, it has something to do with a married couple, like their, their covenant relationship. That's what church is. Church is not a building. Church is not a worship service. Church is a community of faith, a covenant community of faith. The moment that we give our life to Jesus, not only do we enter in a covenant with him, we enter into a covenant with God's people. It's a package deal. And the way that we live out our, our life in this, this covenant community of the church is through the local expression of the church. It's through that local church. 
Like, yes, I'm a member of the global universal church. There is a brother in China who is a follower of Jesus, and he's my brother in Christ, but I can't do koinonia with him because he's on the other side of the planet. This is the value of the local church that here's where we put, this is where we put like meat on the bone. This is where the rubber hits the road. Like this is where conviction takes on real life, real meaning. We live it out in the local church. You know, my prayer is for Anthem that we would be characterized as a people of koinonia. That's why we're doing church lunch after that's why we do it once a month. It's, it's an opportunity for us to just spend a little bit of time together. And time is precious. Yesterday, we had a men's breakfast. Just a little bit of time, some guys gathering. Let's, let's, let's eat some bacon and talk about some stuff. And we need to be doing it way more often. We have a, uh, during the week, uh, Monday mornings, it's a women's group that gets together. And I know there's some ladies putting in, a, in the next women's event for Friday night or Saturday coming up. It's why we do small groups. Or I, mean, I know we're gathering here on Wednesday nights, but we still break up in the small group. We have to have some life-on-life connection. Not just studying God's word, but getting to know each other. I've always asked people, have people over to your house. Have people over to your house for dinner. Just go up to someone and say, hey, come over for dinner. Or let's go get breakfast. Let's go get a cup of coffee. Let's get to know each other and spend time with one another. And let's, let's be an actual Koinonia family. You know that one of the reasons we do the service projects and the, and the outreach projects that we do, I'll let, I'll let the cat out of the bag, is for fellowship. Crate Myrtle Festival in Andrew. All right, it's church marketing. Maybe we'll, you know, we'll invite people. Maybe no one will come. I don't know. You know why we do it? Because guess what? You're out there together for six hours, and I love it. You're hanging out with people that you would not have been hanging out with that day for a long time, getting to know each other. That's fellowship. We're called to community, and the fact is, it's that it's messy. It's not if, it's when we hurt each other. I am going to hurt you, and I'm going to offend you. More than likely, not on purpose, but it might be. It's messy. And you're going to do likewise with me. But isn't that what family is? Isn't family just straight up mess? Well, we don't walk away from our family because it's messy. Well, we don't walk away from church because it's messy. No, we're devoted to one another. We're devoted. So we need to be glued to our conviction. Real fast. Two more things there in verse 42. It says that they were devoted to the breaking of bread. Some people think that means that it's a reference to the Lord's Supper. Maybe. I don't know. To me, it sounds like they're just eating. If it's a reference to the Lord's Supper, you know what? Guess what? We should be devoted to taking the Lord's Supper. We're to be taking it regularly and often. Period. If it's talking about eating meals together, how can you not be devoted to that? you got to eat anyway. So that's a good thing. So I think that's what it's referring to, but I don't know. In verse 46... Clearly, they're talking about eating, so I think that's what it's referring to, but I won't argue on it. And then right after that, it's followed up that they're devoted to the prayers. That this is a characteristic, this is what it means, this is part of the deal of being a Christian. We pray. 
We're devoted to prayer. We're obsessed about prayer, and we do this all the time. We're always devoting ourselves to prayer, all the time, individually and corporately, all of the time. So the third month, the thir- I'm sorry, the third uh, Sunday of every month, 7 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 6 o'clock, we gather here for a worship service. It's specifically a prayer service, a prayer meeting. And we only take one hour out of the month. And I've said this from the beginning, it is so not enough, but that's what we do. Folks, this room should be just as full when we do that as on Sunday morning. Because we should be people of prayer that are devoted to praying with one another and for one another. Very few things happen in this world without God's people on their knees asking for revival and awakening for God's blessing. It actually says in Scripture, you have not because you ask not. If we want to be healthy individually in our faith and we want our church to be healthy, then we need to be devoted to Scripture and to praying. True followers of Jesus, this is how we live. This is life. This is the life we signed up for. We are devoted to God's word. We're devoted to praying. We're devoted to worship. We're devoted to being sacrificial in our giving. We're devoted to fellowship and koinonia. We're 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 completely devoted to one another in every way. This is what it means. These are optional. These are not things that we simply get to add to our calendar if there happens to be time. No, these are of the highest and utmost priority. So some of us need to make a decision. Either we need to stop making excuses or we need to start making time. It's one or the other. Either we're going to stop making excuses or we're going to start making time to make this a priority. Here in the U.S., there is a very aberrant version of Christianity, which is not Christianity, but it's an easy believism Christianity where I believe God is love and I believe he loves me and sure Jesus died for me, but I'm going to do my own thing. I believe in Jesus as Savior, but I'm not going to have a lifestyle change. I'm still going to be devoted to the things I want to because the thing that God's asked for, that's really hard and difficult. And God's not mean. God's not a bully. He wants me to have fun. So I'm going to believe to Jesus, but I'm going to do the very things I want to. So we got to make a choice. Am I going to believe what's easy or am I going to believe what's right? You know what to say about the path of least resistance? You know what makes rivers twist and turn? The path of least resistance. We don't want to be like rivers. We don't want to be winding left and right just because it's easy. We want to go straight even when it's hard because God will make a way. We have to be committed to our devotion and not wander away from the God who loves us. But it's easy to do so, right? It's really easy. So how in the world can we be devoted to God and not wander away? It's just real simple. Preach the gospel to yourself each and every day. Remind yourself of the why, not just what you're supposed to do. Okay, I'm supposed to be devoted to these things. Yeah, remind yourself of that, but remind yourself why. Remind yourself why it is good to be uh, devoted to these things. Remind yourself of your initial conviction. Remind yourself of who Jesus is and what he did for you and just how incredible God's love is for you. You know, earlier I, I said that crazy glue offers an illustration of what devotion is, right? It, it glues our conviction to real life. Well, there may be actually a better illustration to use. This is called laser bond. And this is really neat. Uh, it's an adhesive. And what you do is you take this cap off and then you squirt 
the, what is liquid plastic between two surfaces and you put them together, but it stays liquid up until you hit it with the UV light. And in two seconds, that liquid plastic, let me tell you, it's like JB Weld, if you're familiar with that. It is this extremely tight bond now between the two things. Well, see, by itself, our, our devotion, our, our devotion is like liquid plastic. It kind of leaks, right? And it, it, doesn't, it doesn't really, it doesn't do anything. It's just still in liquid form. So what we need to do is that we need to shine the light of the gospel into our devotion so that it'll cure, so that it'll solidify, and then adhere our conviction to our real life. So every day, speak the gospel into your life. Shine the light of Christ into it. God loves me. God loves me. I mess up all the time, but man, he loves me. And oh man, look at what Jesus did on the cross. Like, like that torture, the whipping that he endured and the wrath of God that he endured. He did that for me to, to, to rescue me out of my sin. And he conquered the grave. And because of that, there is no second death for me. Because of that, I'm going to be with him forever. And he sent his Holy Spirit to abide in me. His very presence is in me, giving me strength and power and counseling and encouragement each and every day. He's given me his word. He's given me his people. I didn't deserve any of it. He's given it all to me simply because he's gracious and wonderful and kind. Oh, and if that's who Jesus is, let me be now devoted to him. You'd be devoted to his word, to his people, to prayer, and to worship. And folks, if we do those things, what happened in verse 47 will take place. God will add numbers to the church. See, because God used their devotion to draw people to himself. He used the devotion of his people to further the gospel and the mission in this world. And we can change it. You can change that, that person next to you at work in the next cubicle, your neighbor, that, that family member. You can be used by God to change their life if you would but be devoted to the things of God. If you would but surrender to the life that God has called you to live. God loves you. Let's be a people of devotion. And I ask you all to bow your heads and close your eyes and to just take a quick minute to just reflect on what you've heard and reflect on God's word. And is there anything here this morning that you've heard that is resonating? If there's anyone here this morning who's never embraced Jesus, it starts there. There's no level of devotion that can earn our salvation or forgiveness. That's by faith, through just humble faith. And in any of us who are followers of Jesus, we step forward in devotion. We begin this life where we we consume his word and give ourselves to the life he's called us to. And we're about to sing a, an old hymn, I Surrender All. And I hope that we will pray that with genuineness and authenticity. 
that today we will surrender all and that we'll wake up tomorrow and sing the same song. Because tomorrow we're going to have to surrender all again. And the next day, and the next day, until Jesus returns.